Hey, it's Sean Fennessy. We've got something special cooking on the Prestige TV podcast. I'll be recapping one of my favorite shows, HBO's Barry, every Sunday night with the writer-director star of the show, the great Bill Hader. We'll talk about the show's wild twists and turns, its special brand of dark comedy, and how it all came together. So on Sunday nights, immediately after a new episode airs, you can hear Bill and I break it all down on the Prestige TV pod. Subscribe on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me on the other line in the same time zone for the first time in like a month, it's Andy Greenwald. I can't believe you're in this time zone, brother. Am I? Yeah. Here's the thing. Everybody knows you as the consummate professional. You know what I mean? Like, Which is a huge pivot from my 20s. You're <laughs> fair, fair, but life is long and full of surprises. Nobody was like, that kid CR is just like a consummate professional. But we I always would, know where he is. Yeah. We can count on burst him. Burst into a bar under like a massive cloud of camel light smoke and just start lecturing people on like whatever dipset mixtape I was listening to. Well, people need to understand though. Okay, so you on the watch, you on the Ringer NBA show, you on the rewatchables. Like this is late period, mid period, you're still getting started, but like CR, you know what I mean? Um, Like this is the new you, this is the professional you become with the talent you already had. You on the rewatchables is the same Bane energy that you brought to New York City in your 20s. Bane as in Tom Hardy's Bane or Desmond Bane or yeah. (laughs) Yes, no, not the three point shooter from the Memphis Grizzlies. That would be flattering. No, no, you were born in the darkness and the chaos. Like you are a chaos agent. That's the energy if they want to remember the old you. And, And now- now you're just a world traveler and you just keep podcasting. I want to com- compare notes on our England trips because Andy was in England, came back on the day after Andy got back. I went to England for work. Because there can only be one of us at any time, like a Highlander. Before we get into that, let's just mention that on today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about Under the Banner of Heaven, the new show that's on uh, FX on Hulu. We'll talk a little bit about any other show that Andy wants to. I know you had 17 <laughs> minutes of just like 
safety off chat without me. So I listened to that. That was awesome. Uh, but we can chat about winning time. We can talk about Barry. We can talk about Atlanta. We can talk about whatever you want to talk about. We're going to continue our Saul schedule uh, where that goes up mm-hmm. Monday nights after those episodes. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening to our show on Monday. If you're a Saul fan, please listen to the Ringer Prestige TV pod because Joanna and Lindbergh do a great job doing a deep dive on the show. And they had Michael Mando on this week. And later in this episode, we have Slow Horses author. So the author of the series, Slough House series, Mick Heron, joined me while I was in London. So I hit him up and we had a normal timed conversation, <laughs> London-wise, about writing uh, the book series uh, of Slough House and then how the show has sort of lived up to his expectations or exceeded them and what it was like to see Gary Oldman and, and Jack Loudon and everybody bring his characters to light. Uh, and maybe we can talk a little bit of Slow Horses because I believe the finale is on this week, right, Andy? I think that's right. I Who would, who could say? Because honestly, like I also want to talk about We Own This City. I want to talk about Winning Time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've noticed, there's a little bit of TV on. I think that it was the ultimate flex that we collectively took three weeks off during the Noah's Ark segment of the TV Bible. Like... It is unprecedented. Amount I did of what you did, which was basically like kind of took a little bit. I, I was so soccer football immersed in England that I kind of took a little bit of break from peak TV. And if I could stay up late, I would watch NBA at night. But man, like coming back and just kind of being like, okay, let me get, make yeah. a list of what I need to get through. I think I have like 15 to 20 hours of television to burn through. And that would just be kind of getting to where that's taking me back to zero. I mean, it is yeah, unprecedented. Uh, it, we're also like, you and I both think that Pachinko has a shot at being the best show of the year, and I'm two episodes behind. And so mm-hmm. we, we will, I will catch up. We will talk about it again on the podcast, just because it's not getting shine. From I believe the, the, the finale is exist. this week too, right? Yeah, we're just, we are unstuck in time here. It's pretty wild. And I would say also, um, so again, you know, I, I, I was traveling with my family. It was spring break for school. Shout out to the people on our Facebook group who are like, who, who ever has two weeks consecutive off. Well, thank you. Proud, proud to work for a place that, that, that lets me go during a school vacation. You were basically working, even though you had a great time because you were doing... Uh, it's possible. It's possible to love what you do, you know? It's, it's incredible. I um, definitely... We spent so much time talking about how global the entertainment marketplace is that I kind of was caught a little flat-footed how challenging it was to keep up on my stories well away. Now, yeah. is part of that reason because a family of four somehow survives with uh, one iPad? Yeah. So was there enough, you know, hard drive space to to, to really pack the episodes on in place of, you know, uh, Raya and the Last Dragon and Bluey season two? No. So that definitely went out. But also that was just like, I, I, I definitely gamed myself. Like they're just, Atlanta's not out there yet. You know, it's just not there yet. The characters are there this season in the UK, but the show wasn't there. So I wasn't able to keep up on that. I'm catching up now. Uh, Moon Knight hasn't dropped yet, I think, because I think they're worried that Oscar Isaac's accent is going to set the special relationship between the UK and the US back by a couple centuries. Right. So couldn't catch up with that. I did. I don't think this is useful for our conversation, but I did preload the old pad with a couple of episodes, actually most of the season of Minx, the Jake Johnson show that we had Jake on to talk about. It's a really good show. Really enjoy it. Just shouting it out. Similarly, a show that we've never mentioned, 
I don't know if we'll be able to circle back to, but our flag means death. Really funny. Yeah. Really good show. And this is where we're at right now. You know, like just because we're not talking about it doesn't mean it's not good or on our radar. It's just, we're just doing triage, man. I also admittedly was distracted by some of the offerings of, of, of British culture, mm. you know, something like Gogglebox, which I was not familiar with, which is oh. a series of uh, British families watching television. So they just like watch Netflix and then like the the show itself is here are these people sitting around a cup of tea watching Harlan Coben's The Stranger and be like, oh, don't go in that room, love. <laughs> Wait, you watch them watch it? Yeah, that's the show. It's apparently a hit over there. I also Wait, it's a thing or is it Black Mirror? Like, do no, they know it's a thing. It's like here are a bunch of British families watching TV and commenting on it. Wow. And like they'll just be watching like the weather report and be like, oh, she looks lovely in fuchsia, you know? (laughs) I mean, I'm not mad at it. Uh, There was also a lot of shows that I watched uh, when I was like in between work and going out to dinner and stuff. That was basically like 65-year-old English people buying uh, very modest homes in Spain, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and looking at three of them and choosing one. This villa in lovely Mallorca, it's got, you know, like this, I got really sucked into that. And then the next thing I knew, I was like nine episodes behind on every show I love. Uh, You know, like I know you mentioned Russian Doll and your monologue. I'm behind on that. I'm like over, already overwhelmed by the fact that Ozark is coming out on Friday and that's the end of Ozark. I feel like very compelled. I have to like watch that this weekend. Do you know what's an interesting genre? Um, I mean, I haven't watched, I should just say, I haven't watched Outer Range yet. I haven't watched Tokyo Vice yet. I will. Uh, I am caught up on Top Chef. Maybe we'll have a moment to talk about that. But you know, it's a genre that I did notice in my brief time actually watching the telly over there. Mm -hmm. There does seem to be, I mean, reality shows are the same everywhere for the most part. The show you just described, House Hunters International, but you know, they're they're versions of shows everywhere. But the one thing that I don't think exists in this country to the degree that it seems to in the UK is a show in which a person just buys a farm and then has to go there. Yeah. Like I saw at least three or four shows where someone's like, well, it's a plow, is it? All right. A bit. Do I move the stones? And then like someone comes over and it's just like, yes, you have to move the stones. Like, right. All right. It's going to be a bit of work, isn't it? Moving the stones. And like next week he moves the stones. And I did find it pretty calming. But the relationship to the terroir, if you will, yeah. is more more present. You know what I mean? Like it was really, it, it's in the collective consciousness in a way that I don't think it is here. So should we stop talking about talking about watching television or do you want to talk about television or would you like to uh, hit some of the Netflix stuff that's been going on since last Thursday? Um, Just briefly, I just think it's just an interesting story for us to keep an eye on. I think we should get into the shows because we have so many of them. But I'd recommend a uh, Kim Masters piece that was in The Hollywood Reporter today, just kind of opening the hood up a little bit and giving a little more context to the position Netflix finds itself in at the moment. Not necessarily in terms of losing subscribers or its place in the marketplace, but we have been having a conversation for a bunch of months about how it just seems like as a service, it was fundamentally changing. And we didn't know the details, but we did point to the end of 2020 when Cindy Holland, who had been in charge of the original programming, was replaced by the by Bella Bajaria, who had been Universal and then came to Netflix and was there as a, in charge, being in charge of the international and unscripted, which had sort of usurped the more expensive traditional like House of Cards, Orange is the New Black type of programming that Cindy Holland had championed. And it's just an interesting story. Basically, like it seemed to verify some of the stuff that we had heard as rumors that there was tension between the executives, you know, that that 
because they were so bullish on the future of growth, the attitude internally was just keep spending, just keep growing, and don't worry about quality control necessarily or being repetitive or where, what's the what's the end game of the types of shows that we are doing or that we are not doing. And so that there's a lot of finger, clearly there's a lot of finger pointing now about, you know, once it's actually been reflected in the bottom line where things hurt the most, but also we don't want to get too glib about it because as we're started recording, there's news breaking that there are now layoffs. Like people are actually losing their jobs because of the stock tumble and the decisions that led to it. Yeah, I think something that you and I will probably track for the rest of the year is the possible belt tightening of the, mm -hmm. the, the sort of televised content industry in general. But specifically like with HBO, the Warner Discovery merger and this sort of probably different attitude that David Zaslav, who is the Discovery chief and his attitude about like, you know, pocket strings and whether or not they're going to continue. I mean, obviously CNN Plus was was closed after just a couple of weeks of operation. And if Netflix goes into a, hey, do we maybe want to make some smarter, more measured bets and dial back on just the constant, you know, the constant uh, wind, like leaf blower that we've got going on on this homepage. That being said, you know, if their goal is still to create a must-see TV moment or must-see TV show for every month, they're still going to have to make a lot of stuff, you know, and... Sometimes those shows aren't things that you and I talk about that much, like Bridgerton. They've got Ozark coming out this week. They've got Stranger Things coming out next month. Uh, I'm excited for Stranger Things. I hope we talk to the Duffer Brothers uh, when that comes back. But yeah, it'll be curious to see whether or not like this almost un unbearable amount of content like starts to slow down a little bit, get parceled out in different ways, and, and what, what Wall Street's reaction is to all of this. The only other thing I just wanted to flag was, you remember when we had Scott Frank on to talk about Queen's Gambit? I do, and which was like that that bit in the Kim Masters piece about the about Queen's Gambit that, being like, what was it called? Cindy's Folly or Holland's yeah, Folly? Because of Cindy that's what I wanted to That's what I wanted to reference because when we had Scott on, he was basically like, no one really believed in this. And he wasn't throwing shots or shade at Netflix. He was grateful they made it. But he, he was basically like, I think everyone's pretty surprised that this is doing well. And this article confirmed that, that internally people were totally losing their minds over it, that, that Cindy Holland was wasting their money, wasting focus on this project that had no future. And it was a, you know, a hugely acclaimed, hugely successful project. And it's precisely the kind of project that they don't really make anymore. I think in 2015, also, we would have seen announcements almost immediately after Queen's Gambit became the sensation that it was that like Netflix was in the Scott Frank business. You know, and that Absolutely. they and that they were like, we have three new shows from Scott Frank in development, and we can't wait to like see what our like. They used to have in house creators. They used to have Genji Cohen and like all these people who were. I think that they they had like relationships with the Finchers and with the people like, and it seems like that's going away a little bit. To be fair, the Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy deals are still yeah, but you know what, those guys like. The Ryan Murphy's still like making shows for FX. You know what I mean? Like I don't. Well, know. that was the thing. That, that that those deals were really like laying a marker down with the kind of swagger and aggression that as referenced in the Kim Masters piece made Netflix just paint a giant bullseye on their back. Like the rest of the town dislikes them because basically they were like, I'm taking your future off the board for more money than anyone else can afford to spend with the full knowledge as you're alluding to that if things are in first position, they stay in first position. Right. Or if you want to take this show and just say that it's American crime story, <laughs> you go ahead or that it's yeah. dual a feud or whatever it is. Let's start talking about some shows because there's so many to talk about. And I want to uh, throw out under the banner of heaven first mm -hmm. because this week I've seen two 
incredible new shows. And We Own the City is one and Under the Banner is another. And um, I would just say, I, you know, am, I am, I'm, I'm not a, a crackhead, a crack hour head. I, I did, have not read. <laughs> is that what uh, they're called? That's what we're calling it. Into the Wild, mm-hmm. uh, Into Thin Air, and Under the Ban of Heaven, like his his three major masterpiece nonfiction works that he's made. I just it, it just never got a chance to read those. Um, so going into this with pretty uh, with no really previous knowledge about what it's about, other than a crime in the uh, in Utah in the the Mormon community there, and man, like David McKenzie directing Dustin Lance Black script, starring Andrew Garfield, Sam Worthington, Daisy Edgar Jones. Gil Birmingham, who's awesome in this. Wyatt Russell, who's great in this. Adelaide Clemens from Rectify. Yeah. And I was just like, this is this, I guess this is the flip side of like all the um anxiety all this TV produces. But if this is where all the talent is going and they're pouring this many kind of like creative energies into something like this, it's just, it was just like a such an assured show that knew the world it was set in, I was like, man, I can't wait to watch this. More of this. Yeah, I've only watched the first. I think two episodes dropped on FX on Hulu. I'm going to make a sports analogy, which I know is weird for The Ringer, but I'm going to do my best. I'll allow it. Uh, Thank you. Um, The 2022 Philadelphia Phillies, a team that is already frustrating us, uh, is the sort of thing where before the season begins... I can't even... The emotional real estate, it's just James Harden lives on one corner... I know. Howie Roseman lives on another corner. There's just no room for Bryce Harper yet. No, I get it. But I, what I want to say is that they just made this team and they stacked the lineup, right? With yeah. just like meaty dudes who can mash dingers. Just a lot of them. And it was interesting because on paper, you're like, oh, I see what they're doing here. They're only going to field people who can hit home runs. And so we're going to score 30 runs a game. And then there's a part of it, and you're like, well, I, that's how you win ballgames. That makes sense. I see the heavy hitters here. It's going to be great. Then you actually get on the field, and you have to play defense, and mm-hmm. other things have to break your way, and often it doesn't work out, as it, it doesn't seem to be working out for our team. But I think there's relevance here for TV, because we're coming off of a, of a time period where stacking the lineup with proven, if creaking, power hitters was the name of the game, right? You packaged it to get it sold and it was flashy and shiny and that at least got it made and it helped it cut through the clutter. It's interesting that Under the Banner of Heaven, which you know was a bestseller, this isn't necessarily like the sexiest topic, but it was a bestselling book from a bestselling author. The screenwriter won an Oscar for writing Milk. Um, yeah. milk. Um, David McKenzie, a phenomenal Scottish director. Hell or High this, Water and, and, and Start Up, yeah. This felt like... It felt like the project that we've been seeing that we've been seeing falter recently. Like it's too top heavy. It's not actually going to come off the way that you intended to. And now one episode in, it it might not. But my feeling watching the first hour, especially the first fifteen minutes, was one of just like awe and relief and gratitude because I was like, these guys know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah, like in such a cool way. It looked beautiful. The camera movements were decisive. It immediately communicated its language of how it was going to tell the story. Andrew Garfield is having a moment and is a phenomenal actor whom I think we both have a lot of time for. But I was just thinking the grace notes of the first 10 minutes when his character, who is a a Mormon police detective in, I believe it's the 80s when this is set, Mm -hmm. or at least early 90s, 
is playing with his family on like an idyllic weekend evening and gets a call that he has to go into work and there's a horrific crime scene. And the way the show transitions from the beauty of the first moments to the horror of the second through Andrew Garfield's very emotionally pliant face is just artful and lovely. And I, you know, the, the rest of the hour introduces a bunch of characters and timelines and things that I don't even know if we care about yet, including a context I know nothing about. And I was just like, these guys know what they're doing. Yeah. It really feels worked on, not worked over. And I just can't stress enough how nice that is. Yeah, I mean, it looks incredible. I also think that how many, uh, how many crime shows have we seen where a detective has his faith tested, either mm-hmm. his faith in humanity or his literal faith in, in a spiritual being? And uh, I found myself very deeply affected by Garfield's performance. And, you know, like the opening moments of this uh, show after the scene that Andy described do track, uh, you know, it's a very familiar, like, cop move through crime scene moment. But um, the sensitivity that I think is the hallmark of Garfield's work is really on display here. And just watching him process a crime scene that we really don't see and is only described later. uh, Which is also a really important decision. Yes. Yeah. The Um, camera mirrors... Garfield's character's sensitivity in a way that feels really thoughtful. Yeah. So I thought I thought that the, it did a really good job with inverting or messing around with some tropes. And I also thought the crucial thing here was going to be being able to depict a community that is obviously controversial and is obviously not being shown in the, the greatest light in this show, but take it seriously. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the hardest thing to do is to not just immediately be like, look at these weirdos, you know, like Mm -hmm. what are they doing? And instead it's like, everything is very sober, appropriately so. Yet I didn't feel like it was a grind or overly morose. Like it is a procedural, it does move. The case is evolving in the first sort of 12 hours that you sort of see in this first episode. I can't wait to watch more of it. Um, 12 hours of the day in the the show world, not 12 hours. Yeah, no, I think that, I don't know how many episodes there are in this one. It's a really good time for crime shows because we also have another David Simon show on uh, on HBO. Is it on HBO Max or is it on HBO? I can't remember. It's HBO. HBO. We own this city, man. Uh, I, I watched this a couple weeks ago. I watched it again when it aired. I think watching it again helped in terms of like uh, navigating, again, another show with multiple timelines, going, tracking the sort of rise and fall of John Bernthal's cop character Wayne Jenkins who's being investigated by federal authorities as well as uh, I think eventually the the civil rights department of the justice department by a lawyer played by Wami Misaku who's you may, people may remember from Loki but who does an amazing job in this uh she's awesome in this show and this show opens with like basically a 5 minute Bernthal monologue and Ronaldo Marcus Green the director of King Richard is jumping around to like different shots of Baltimore life kind of to illustrate some of the points or juxtapose with some of the points. And you're just like, I, I, you know, I said this to Bill, but like, I was like, dude, like there are just really, nobody can do cop stuff like Simon and Pelicanos. Let's, I, I want to go there, but I do want to start with who you just mentioned. I think this is the, the first episode of this. I'm going to say something controversial that I haven't thought through entirely, but this is a podcast. So this feels right. I think this is the best directed hour of anything that Simon and Pelicanos have ever I, done. I honestly agree with that. With no like disrespect to, I'm sure I could go back through and be like, oh, penultimate episode of season three of The yeah. Wire is incredible. But so much of those were very like static coverage, 
master one one get in and yeah. out and that's and, nothing and wrong suit, with that yeah no that suited the material and i i think one could I, one doesn't even need to make the argument that if the wire had been handed over to showboaty directors it would have the series would have suffered that wasn't appropriate michelle mclaren did a really nice job with the pilot at the deuce i mean they've worked with talented people before but Ronaldo marcus green who I think did a brilliant job with King Richard, which I think was a successful, not successful, really good movie, not to a large degree because of him, because there's an effortlessness to the complexity that he of, of what he does, right? With King Richard, it was like, this is a very traditional, familiar type of story that's going to hit these beats, but he's going to shoot it in a way that feels like cinema verite. It feels like it's discovered and found, and it feels just lived in and natural. It does not feel affected in any way. And it's such a perfect match for a show that is, you know, every David Simon show trends towards journalism in a way. And I think actually Pelicanos' literary sensibilities have been a really good hedge on that and, and, and helped, uh, you know, adapt and change the way that he works in a way that has been really fruitful for both of them. But they're always going to trend towards a little bit of reportage. And Ronaldo Marcus Green's style suits that so perfectly. It doesn't feel hopped up or artsy or showy or all the things that, you know, that, that very directed. TV can feel like. Every movement suits the story, but it feels elevated. You know, it flows. The cuts, the choices, I, I found it electric. I didn't, I, I think the worst criticism that can be levied at Simon Pelicano's shows is that sometimes they feel educational, mm -hmm. which is good. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they're a little pedantic, or they could be, or you it's feel just, the tension I think some of the between stuff... getting it right and making it fun to watch. Yeah. This felt electric, even though there are, it's mostly vegetables, if that makes sense. There's a lot when, in the conversations that are happening in the civil rights office of the justice department, the mayor's office, some of the conversations with the upper brass of the police department, it's very much like here is a download with the state of play of Baltimore police in mm -hmm. 2015 or 17. So, it can feel like you're just kind of reading a really good article at sometimes. Like it hasn't really got maybe those characters haven't gotten to character moments, although I I I do think that there are some. To your point about Ronaldo Marcus Green, though, this when they're when it comes to the Wayne Jenkins, the Bernthal character, to me, his character is like a lot about movement. It's about a guy who thinks he has the right to walk down any street in Baltimore mm -hmm. and do whatever the fuck he wants with his guys. And like so many of the interesting kind of moments cinematically in this episode are following this character as he moves with impunity, mm -hmm. you know, like him moving around that classroom while he's delivering the speech, him going on a raid with the gun task force and like the camera kind of like following him as he leans like to his right while he's walking. Cause he has his gun behind his back or, have, you know, how many walks up the stairs at the end with his legs splayed as wide as possible, like he's Donald Duck, like he yeah. just owns every piece of real estate that he touches. Absolutely. So it's like, I think it's like the perfect kind of direction for the action for the character that we're seeing. And, you know, just like these guys are also, aside from just knowing the um, the sort of dialect of cop and dialect of Baltimore crime so well. They are so good at finding faces, and, and this is probably our buddy Alexa Fogel. You know, it's like finding these faces, finding these actors, Gosh. finding these characters to play the best. county, county sheriff, you know, task force guys who are like tracking a spiked batch of heroin across Baltimore. You know what I mean? And the two dudes they've got are just like, I'm like, you guys are fucking 
this is a perfect two guys. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I can't even no, I'm just like I can't get over how good the casting is in this show. And and, and Bernthal, like this this might be the perfect Bernthal part in a lot of ways. Like this, I I feel like my, I, I'm interested in my relationship to him as a performer because I first became aware of him on The Walking Dead, which I had a very complicated relationship with yeah. when I was, yeah, yeah. I was recapping the first season and I did not like it as everybody knows. And he, his character was one of the most frustrating characters on the show. And I had some trans, transference where I was like, I don't think I like this guy very much. And then he started working all the time. And I was like, okay, I see why he's working all the time because he brings that kind of macho swagger to these parts. And, you know, it's very effective in something like Sicario. And then you read interviews with him and you realize he's like a very smart, sensitive guy, Quaker school alum like us. And uh, he has something that's just surprising and that's kind of interesting there's like a grace in his brutality, you know, and it is a, it's a, again, this is also something that Simon and Pelicanos rarely do is write like a star vehicle. And it's hard to say this is a star vehicle when it is once again, a show about um, the deep seated rot within a police department within a city. But he is the linchpin of this show in a way, because he embodies all of the thematic issues. It It's a really bravura performance. It's really compelling to look at. Yeah, and in, in the same sense that maybe this is like Apex Bernthal, they also found the perfect curveball Josh Charles performance. Let's talk about like, this. You, you were tweeting with each other. About no, this, I mean, right? I think I made a joke about like the early image of Josh Charles hanging onto his own bulletproof vest and just be like me at the end of the pandemic. I can't remember <laughs> what the joke I made. And he was like, I hope you like the show. And I do. And I also like yeah. Josh Charles in the show who plays this scumbag named Daniel Hersel. Who like everybody when they're like, oh, who's the dirty cop in in Baltimore? They're like this guy. <laughs> like it's definitely it's, this guy. <laughs> it's really interesting. People have said this and written about it more eloquently than we'll be able to talk about here. But the show is really it's not a corrective to the wire, but it is an interesting descendant of the wire. Yes. Um, because there's no version of watching The Wire where you're like, this is copaganda. I mean, that is not what that show no, was. No, not at all. S- Simon has a lot of time and respect for people who have done, who've worn the badge and done it well and with respect. And Ed Burns, who's a longtime collaborator, who's on this as well, was a detective that Simon met when he was embedded with the police department all those years ago. He's also, you know, hopefully, I think this is his project and I think it's worked, you know, just brought a great deal of empathy to all the players on all the sides of a misbegotten national project of policing and the drug war and and maintenance and survival of cities. So all of that is to say the teeth around what the power imbalance in cities has never, they've never been sharper, I think, than they are in this show. It is absolutely a show that is 2022 about events that are, you know, based on a a nonfiction book seven to 10 years ago. Um, well, you know, and it's interesting that you bring up the wire because like, I think it would be easy and I'm, I'm not above it myself to be like, this is kind of a appendix to the wire, if not season six, but the wire did not end being like, things are going to get better, you know? No, it definitely did not. They did not. (laughs) They did not get better. But, but what the wire did do is something that I think we always miss is just the way that the camera entered into the rooms of people on all the levels of a project like a city. Yeah. And this goes into some different rooms and it also goes into the suburbs and counties and their relationship to the cities. And it has a, you know, it has a very contemporary view of what the drug war means. Because one of the other things about The Wire that's worth mentioning, a lot of the reporting that fueled 
the show, which aired in the early 2000s, was a decade old already. Like the fam- the towers, right, that were the, the, the stage for so many of those first few seasons with the Barksdales, they were knocked down, I think, in the 90s. I remember learning this when I was covering the show. So it was backwards looking in a way about the drug war. I mean, a lot of it was always relevant. This feels much more of the moment in terms of the spike in opiate abuse and heroin and fentanyl and, and also just the way not just policing is done now, but also the way we look at policing. There's some really interesting stuff in the first episode where an arrest is abandoned because of community flashing cameras at someone and phone, yeah. you know, uh, uh, phones, basically. Um, last thing I just want to say as a recommendation for the show, which I just can't wait to watch all of, you mentioned Wunmi Masako at the beginning. She's, she's an English actress. She's great in this role. She smiles so much in one particular scene when she's introduced to her new, by the way, extremely handsome uh, work associate in the Civil Rights Department. Yeah, Ahmed. Yeah. I was, I was so struck by that scene in the choice because it's not just that smiles, you know, aren't always uh, freely offered in David Simon shows. I just love the tr- character choice that this was a woman who works in some tough areas and has to have some tough conversations and is you know comfortable going toe to toe with the mayor. But she was happy to meet somebody. Yeah, like she was just there. Was, I don't know why I'm harping on. It. I just thought it was like a beautiful. Interesting well, I think choice. that her character also has a very like pragmatic view of what she does, which is like I think that there's there's some notes in there about like well we'll you know it's not like Trump's going to win, so we'll probably still have some kind of remit. But they were talking about how often the the mayor or the governor or whoever mm-hmm. who brings you in to fix a system is rarely the mayor or governor who then gives you permission to do so when you've been like, okay, here are the, here are the issues. And by the way, that may be doubly or trebly so in um, Baltimore because then I was Googling like how much of this is real, how much of this is fictionalized. And I'm like, who's the mayor of Baltimore? And I'm like, oh, the mayor of Baltimore is a 38-year-old guy who was on the city council. I'm like, that's wild. Wait, how long has he been mayor? Oh, okay, two years. And you see like the timeline of mayors and the previous two mayors were mayors for like two years and eight months. Yeah. And then it's just like, Reason for leaving office, indicted. Yes. Indicted. Like, it's a complicated place. I think we should also just note, because we are talking about The Wire and we're talking about David Simon, We Own the City is showrun by George Pelicanos, uh, who had worked on The Wire and has been on this podcast two or three times, is one of our great favorite writers, crime writers, and also people. And he co-ran The Deuce with uh, with David Simon, and they co-wrote and developed the show. George Pelicanos is still one of the but, all-time refusals to hang out with us. Uh, wait, let's end on that. I just want to say, give him some shine because he deserves it. This is his first solo show running, even though he's working with I his think team. you got the wrong pod, bro. I don't think anybody has ever been. <laughs> we shine up George Pelicano. I know. I just want <laughs> like, there was a great profile of him in the Times where he's just like, I'm so happy I get to do this. Like, I love doing this. It was just beautiful. He that, loves making stuff. And he, this is his show. He's show running it. Yeah, all time. We've already mentioned this, but we should do it again. That we went to his reading of Drama City, his yeah. 2004 novel. Uh it was it must have been March. It was like March Madness of 2004. And we went to his reading at Barnes & Noble. <laughs> we went up to when he, we had our book signed. And we were like, basically, like, do you want to hang out and go watch tournament basketball? <laughs> and he was just like, no. <laughs> he like looked at us kindly yeah. with a smile. He saw the cloud of camel smoke that followed you like Pigpen in the fucking Charlie Brown comics. Yeah. And he was just like, respectfully, young men. I will retreat to my room and watch the same game, but with a single Heineken and slippers on. And we were like, that's cool, Grandpa. And now dream. I dream of a night like that. What could be better? But in you, I told you, right, that like I've mentioned before, like he, he, I told him in that 
autograph line. I said this to him when he was on the pod, so people know this. But it means a lot when people do stuff like this. I told him that I had written a novel that was coming out, and he wrote in my Drama City book, like, best of luck with the book, George. It's like, I think about that all the time. Yeah, to me, he just wrote Smoking Kills. (laughs) (laughs) He's just like... Good luck with all of that. Yeah. Hey, before we get into my Mick Heron interview, do you want to just, uh, I, I don't know where you're at with Slow Horses, but I would love to just hear, you know, any thoughts you have before we Wait. jump in. I obviously love this show. Um, can, can I just pull a ticket to talk winning time? Maybe we just revisit it on Monday then, since um, we're a couple days removed from an episode that I thought was the season finale because they only sent promos through eight, but there yeah. are two more. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we can talk, so we'll revisit on Monday. No, you, I mean, like, just, I, I feel like with Winning Time, I am now too much in the zone where, like, I'm, like, analyzing their, like, Bill and I were talking about this, but, like, the, their basketball reference page from that season and, like, kind of doing a lot of historical fact-checking. Yeah, right. So I would love to hear what somebody who is not doing that thinks of the show. I mean, I, I don't mean to be this guy, but I, or the, the, or the, the, Victorian new critic, but I'm like, fuck it. This show is entertaining as shit. Like I just really love watching it and I don't feel troubled by the morality of it. Maybe I should, maybe I need to give that more consideration. I'm not troubled Um, by it at all. We do this when we make television shows to everyone. No one is ever accurately portrayed on television, even in the most generous portrayals, but general, but I think more often than not, we have had TV shows about morally suspect people or people who have fallen like this, you know, all the tech bros and bro like Elizabeth Holmes who have been recently on our screens, right? So we're not, we don't really get, we're not that worried about what the dude from WeWork feels about Jared Leto's performance, right? Like he's not getting the same ink that a beloved icon like Jerry West is getting sure. for his complaints. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I feel bad that he's so upset and Kareem seems pissed, but like, you know, if you have the choice for the true story of the legend, you print the legend, and this is literally that. This is this is a this is the stories that it could have been. Can I guess really your favorite part of the show? Um, I do. We were just talking about the wire. I do want to shout out Wood Harris, who yeah. is incredible on As the Spencer show. Haywood, yeah, As Spencer Haywood. That is just such a low key, incredible performance. Uh, what is my favorite part? Um, the Let's Brody Siegel triangle, the love triangle between those three. Yeah. Well, also in the Philadelphia of it, because two of the three of them are from Philly. I know. Which I didn't realize. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it all works out, right? They all stay friends? Absolutely. And the Lakers I mean, there's just There's two episodes left. That's my, <laughs> that's um, my sense. So, uh, Slow Horses. Okay, briefly. Slow Horses, yeah. I'm, I think we only I'm talked about the- five. I've not I, watched the finale. Okay, so I think we only talked about like the first episode generally. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a very, very faithful adaptation, uh, as I talked about with Mick a little bit. You know, this is probably, if you were a novelist- the dream, you know, they both cast amazing actors who look and feel like the characters in your book. And then they do a very, very faithful rendering of your work so that you can just feel good about it. He was talking about how basically there's the version of this where you get deeply involved and you're, you know, Mm -hmm. you, you, you basically make a condition of buying the rights that you use him as either a screenwriter or whatever, an executive producer with some creative, input or you can just say give me the check and I'll see you guys when the, at the premiere and he's like I got to do the exact middle version which was they they said here let's do this I got to give some notes and talk a little bit about you know what I thought should things should look like and feel like but they also had like an incredible creative team you know writer Will Smith and and obviously the cast to kind of just go through and bring this all to life and 
in a time when I feel like a lot of stuff is like very weighed down, you know, funny shows that aren't that funny, serious shows that are too serious. This was just like the perfect, I, I mean, I mentioned Justified a couple of times. I just find that this show is just tonally so right up my alley. I feel the same way about the tone and the cast and the setting. I, 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 I mean this with love when I say that I find it refreshing how little this show asks of me. Yeah. That could be a backhanded compliment. I don't intend it to be. I just mean there's a there's a, a confidence, a quiet assuredness in every piece of it, and it doesn't get too bothered with itself. You know, I, I never watch the show, um, which, you know, I, I assume if you're still listening, you're vaguely aware of the plot points, but it's a, it's a spy show set in London about disgraced spies who all work for a supremely disgraced spy played by brilliantly by Gary Oldman. The show never even gives you a moment to be like, is that spy? Is that proper spycraft? Or what's actually going on here? It just moves, and I think the only bump that I've had wasn't one of disappointment or dismay. It was more of surprise. You had read the book before watching the show. I was really surprised that the series, the first series, is essentially one night. That it mm-hmm. is an uninterrupted action. Yeah. You know, I thought we'd be settling in with these people, but in fact, there is a there's an inciting event. There's a kidnapping, and then there's a race to find the kidnapped person. And it's all happening. It's not in real time, but it's awfully close to it. Yeah. You know? Which is an interesting way to meet characters. And so if it's But even paused, in, you know, you you're I don't even feel like they're that bothered to make sure we know that. You know what I mean? Like no, I don't feel like they're I like, agree. oh, just we're really stressing the fact that this is like twenty four, that this is like all in one night, you know? No, and 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 it's also, you know, it's it's also early days, but it's like Gary Oldman, an icon is playing a character who is already an icon. Like there isn't any, at least in the early going, any like let's let's unpack this guy and see how he ticks. Let's follow him home for one night and understand his trauma or his damage. I mean, he is just playing the entire cast, crew, and plot like a fiddle. Mm-hmm. You know, he is just dining out. And I guess we did see him dine out on some cold, cold takeaway noodles. But other than that, he's dining out on every scene. And it's fun. And it doesn't really need to be much more than that, at least in the early going. It's kind of, I guess what, I keep feeling like I'm being critical. I don't intend to be. I just no, find because it kind it's of like, refreshing. it's not, I, I think that the sensibility of it and there is a lightness to it, even though everything is rain soaked and smoked on and full of double, yeah. double crossing and betrayals and false red herrings and stuff like that. Like it still feels very like light and breezy and that it's always yeah. a pleasure to watch. And I think, yeah, you, you know, should let's it- remember that. I think it's just not just us, but all of us like with this deluge of television, like each show that you're watching, they don't all have the same goals and yeah. they don't necessarily need to be covered in the same way. And it's also worth considering where the floor and ceiling are for them. And we started by talking about under the banner of heaven. And that really is like the heart of the Phillies lineup two true outcomes. It's home run or strikeout. Yeah. I, I don't think oh, there's a version. Oh, if that, a bad version of Under the Banner of Heaven would have been like a kind of turn this off after 25 minutes. Not just that. What does a mediocre version even look like? What? Like, what is right. a C-plus version of a show? I mean, it's not something that you're going to stick with for six episodes because it's not really worth it, right? It has yeah. to be exceptional or nothing. And Slow Horses isn't bothered at all by trying to solve societal problems or comment on the state of the world today or whatever. It's just like, yeah, we're going to have a lark in the spy space and we're going to cast the shit out of it. And we're going to have a lot of Apple money to actually shoot in London on streets that you and I once trod. I trod them last week. I was walking right by Regent's Park and I was like, holy shit. 
Did you go in and get a lanyard? Yeah, I was. It took a while for for my uh, for my identity to be uh, verified. So why don't we wrap it up there and go to my interview with Mick Heron, who's the author of the novel series that Slow Horses is based on. And then Monday, Andy and I will be back after Better Call Saul airs, and we could chat about that. And then maybe we can also jam some Barry Atlanta and what winning time, some combination of that talk in there. That sounds good. And then you're, I know Chris is too modest to say it, but he's just going to pound Moon Knight the rest of the day. Sure. That's exactly what I'm going to do. He loves it. I love British culture. Chris loves it. (laughs) That's right. One last taste. Thanks to Kaya McMullen for producing us at a normal time. We will talk to you guys on Monday night. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Mick Heron, thank you so much for joining me today on The Watch Podcast. I'm a huge fan of the Slough House books, and obviously I'm a huge fan of the Slow Horses adaptation that's currently on Apple. Mick, I was wondering if uh, we could talk a little bit about life before these books, though, for uh, the Watch listeners who are mostly debased American television fans. What what sort of, uh, what kind of, you were, you're from Newcastle originally, right? Yeah, that's right. That's where I grew up. Newcastle is in the northeast of England. And uh, I grew up and went to school there and left to come and live in Oxford. Well, I came to study in Oxford and uh, I've never left Oxford. I've been living here ever since. And did you have 
like sort of a lifelong affinity for espionage fiction or, or spy novels? I mean, was it something that had been kicking around in your head for a long time or was this something that was more of a like later in life kind of realization that you wanted to write books like this? I think probably more than latter. I've always been a fan of thriller fiction and uh, crime fiction in general, which includes a lot of spy fiction. Sure. And, you know, a writer like Le Carre is obviously one of those um, writers who bridges the gap between genre fiction and uh, literary fiction. Um, so I've always been an admirer. My initial uh, forays into writing uh, thriller fiction were more along the you know, individual gets sucked up into international event kind of thing, uh, and then private eye novels. So the spy novel came a bit later. I think Slow Horses was my sixth novel, if right. I counted correctly. Um, and I think by that time, I had just decided I wanted to do something. New. I'd kind of taken little steps into that world, a little bit in my first novel, perhaps, but mostly in a novel called Reconstruction, which is my fourth book. I decided to go in for it um, full on with that sixth book, at which time my career, if you can call it that as a writer, had become established as being not, not quite non-existent, but I didn't have a, a huge readership. I wasn't in bookshops. I was in libraries. I had some readers. I had a very good American publisher, so I was probably better known in the States than I was over here. But, um, you know, being a writer wasn't sort of impacting on my life in any way. Right. Uh, publicly, you know, I was, I was working away after my day job, but um, I wasn't known particularly as a, as a novelist at all. Um, and the reasons for writing spy novel at that time were partly I wanted to get a little bit more political, I suppose. Partly I was aware that the world was changing. I mean, I'd been, along with you know, millions of other people, in London on the day that the bombs went off in, in 2005. And uh, that made me think about these, these kind of events, you know, the events that are the territory of modern spy fiction, you know, the kind of thriller, um, terrorist attacks, rather. And I realised that I wanted to sort of write about that, um, but from the point of view of you know people who were present rather than totally involved. If you right. The distinction. Sort of a just adjacent to the action, almost right. That's right. Which is um, why my my heroes, inverted commas, my protagonists are uh, not at least not initially ever totally involved in what is going on around them. You know, they're they're forbidden from taking part. Obviously, they always do end up taking part in, in what's going on. But uh, I wanted them to be people who were frustrated by event and um, and feel thwarted in their careers by not by not being James Bond, essentially, by being, um, uh, yes, hero adjacent. I like that phrase. That's right. That. <laughs> um, you know, you mentioned Le Carre, and, and that's obviously, I think, for the person most people think of when they think of spy fiction. And he had this personal background or personal attachment to the to the world of espionage, which you don't, I assume, or at least you can't tell me about it without having to kill me. Um, I was curious, though, you know, even in my, for myself, if I ever even think of a story that, whether I'd write it or not, it, I just imagine the world of espionage is a very daunting thing to dip your toe into. And that you, it, did you have a lot of like hangups about, am I getting this right? Am I getting this wrong? How would this work? Where is this thing? Like all of the sort of practical matters. Did you ever find that to be a, a hurdle you had to get over to start writing? Very much so. I think that's what stopped me from launching myself into this part of my writing career earlier, because I always felt that, you know, I didn't have any special knowledge. I didn't have any more awareness of geopolitics than any, you know, newspaper reader 
I'm not very good at research, which is to say I'm quite lazy about it. I don't like doing research. So I didn't want to kind of rebuild myself as someone who knew a lot about these things. Um, so I simply took what I'd acquired from, you know, having been a reader, having been a TV watcher, having been a moviegoer all the most of my life, and married them to uh, a bunch of characters who weren't actually in the front line. So they were not... Uh, they didn't have access to any of the kind of the technology that you'd have to write about now if you were to write an accurate, up-to-date description of how the espionage business works. You know, I assume these days it's mostly electronic surveillance of one right. kind or another. I don't know much about that. But I do know that um, how much you're allowed to make up these days. I remember talking to somebody who knows a lot more about these things than I do, another writer. And he said something along the lines of, if the hardware exists the software will be available if you've got a smart fridge then it can be used to spy on you that kind of thing right so you just need to know i've i discovered once i sort of got my confidence up a bit you just need to know a tiny little amount about how these things work and you can incorporate it and make it seem plausible it doesn't have to be authentic in a novel it just has to seem plausible and there are, are, what would you say, especially, I'm, I'm sort of early in the series, I'm on the third novel uh, of, of the book series, but for you, I mean, do you see pieces of you in the books? Do you see pieces of your experiences in London? Do you see neighborhoods or streets you w- used to walk down or, or still do, or, or uh, maybe even Chinese takeouts that you model the Chinese takeout on? <laughs> um, definitely in terms of location, yes. And these streets around which these books are largely set is where I used to work. I mean, that's okay. where it came from. As I said, I'm sort of research averse, and I tend to use whatever is nearest, you know, the least effort involved. That's what I like. So I work near the Barbican, so I introduced the Barbican into the books. And I used to walk past this building that I turned into Slough House every day um, on my way to and from work. So they became the locale for, for setting the characters in. The characters I make up, but any time you're inventing a character, and I do tend to write from the point of view of the characters mm-hmm. that I write about, uh, then you necessarily incorporate aspects of your own character, even if you're playing off them rather than using them for your for your cause you know I, I will think of you know how i feel and use the exact opposite for instance to in a character perhaps uh, but mostly it's it's feelings about london and and those streets and so on yes they all come from my own experience really i mean the narrator in these books is as much a character as say jackson lamb or river cartwright that's what i was going to ask about that narrator is the one character who doesn't quite make it into the show right that's right, yeah. Um, but that narrative voice is something that's been acquired rather than rather than a, a kind of natural expression of how I am and how I feel about things. It seemed to me the appropriate tone of voice to use while telling these stories. Do you ever personify that narrator or think about him or her as a, as a person? No, I don't. That's interesting. It's never occurred to me. Um, it is simply the voice I kind of slip into when I sit down at the laptop and, and start work. Um, I suppose I notice when, I hope I notice when um, I hit the wrong notes while using that voice uh, and delete them, you know, but um, but otherwise, no, I mean, I, I don't think about it in the same way as I do think about, say, Catherine when I'm writing from her point of view. Right. That's, that's an actual adoption of a point of view, whereas the narrative voice is, is simply tone. It's just going for the right tone. You know, that narrator that we're talking about is... It's strange because it, it's cinematic 
without being, I think, easily translatable. And by that, I mean, you'll do things like, I believe Dead Lions opens with the cat walking through uh, the Slough House offices as a kind of to introduce these different characters and the, the geography of the office building, which is a very cool idea that you as a reader can see as you're sort of following this cat around. But I imagine would be if you were making hard, fast choices about what to and to not include in a television show, the cat might go first, you know, like, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The, the narrative voice, I think the only way you could maintain that or include that in the show would be to have a voiceover. Nobody wants a TV show with a voiceover. So um, a, t- a talking cat might, might, <laughs> might maybe a talking cat would do. um, but no, it, it was the, the first thing to go. Uh, obviously it never even occurred to me that it was being jettisoned really. I mean, it's just, it just seemed natural. Uh, and of course, a lot of um, the way I write is um, is interior voices, so ways of delivering, you know, both the information and the emotion contained in in that. New ways have to be found of of, um, of doing that. But this is what TV writers do. This is what screenwriters do. Um, it's not a skill I have. I mean, I'm I'm a prose writer, uh, but it's been fascinating watching the writers, and I've worked with them a bit, uh, finding ways of doing that. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about the collaboration. I would imagine that there was probably, you know, elation at Gary Oldman playing Jackson and 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 Jack Loudon playing River, and I'm I'm sure you're you, you were excited to get started. But is there did you feel any territoriality? Is there any kind of uh, a sort of creative possessiveness that come, came over you when you first started getting into the idea of of this first book being adapted? I expected that to happen, at least to some degree. And I'd never worked in a creative fashion. I'd never worked collaboratively before. So uh, I was slightly, you know, not daunted perhaps, but interested to see how that was going to work out. It's been a fascinating and and, and really um, grand experience for me. Uh, what happened was I'd been in the writer's room a bit. Um, the writer's room will run generally for about three weeks per, per show. I mean, per book, I suppose, since the best way of putting it. And during those three weeks, um, the action of the novel is broken down into six episodes and those episodes are broken down beat by beat essentially and certainly scene by scene and i've been there while that's being done i've been there for a large part of that process so a lot of that is the problem solving you know how do we get this information you know across to the to an audience rather than who aren't just reading it off the page that kind of thing and we decide you know who's going which characters have to go and and you know how we can use things in a slightly different way because right. it's a different grammar of storytelling you know on, on screen storytelling than on the page so all those kind of problems come up and they all get um or i hope all get solved one way or the other that's the part of the process that i've been in and i found it really energizing because i've been in a room with people discussing the books and discussing these characters and and giving them real weight you know giving weight to the characters opinions and to the characters experiences and treating the material with with enormous amount of respect. Now, I've always thought that as a novelist, you know, if you're approached by TV, film company or whatever, you have two choices. You either say, okay, give me the money, here's the book. Right. Or you say, okay, I want to be involved in every stage. And I was kind of midway between those two. I would have, you know, if I'd been given an ultimatum, I would have said, okay, I'll take the money and I'll walk. But they wanted me to be involved and... They've been really respectful of, of me and the books, and far more so than I would have um, you know, required or expected. But I've made really good friends while working on this show. Uh, I've always come out of the writer's room feeling really energized and wanting to get on with, with my own work. 
And I don't feel proprietorial about the books that they're working on. I feel proprietorial about the book I'm writing now. Right. The work I was doing this morning before talking to you. That's mine. Nobody goes anywhere near that until it's finished. But, you know, dead, um, Slow Horses and Dead Lions, both of them were written more than a decade ago now. At least a decade ago, I was probably finishing Dead Lions. Um, I've written much since. And, you know, they're, they're kind of in my rearview mirror in a way. I mean, the characters are still there, but they've moved on a bit and they're doing different things now. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy for, you know, the, the, the necessary rewriting that is required when you're translating something onto the screen. That can be done. You know, we're, we're making a different product here. I don't like the word product particularly, but that's essentially sure, what it is. Yeah. It's a TV, TV show is being made out of, um, out of the book. And that's got to be done differently. What amazes me looking at it now is how faithful it is. It's incredible. It's, it's inc- extraordinary. It's not so much the plot, although the plot is, is very, very close to, to what I wrote. But it's the characters, it's the tone, it's the feel. They've got the look exactly right. And they, went, they didn't just go the extra mile. They ran the extra marathon, the producers, in making this. They got permission to use the outside of the actual building that I walked past every morning. When they say, this is Slough House, that is Slough House. That is the building that I decided to put Slough House in. They changed the frontage of the retail shops on the, on the ground floor because I made up the Chinese restaurant. Right. But they altered the frontage so that there's a Chinese restaurant <laughs> just for the purposes of the show. Um, so they, they did all these things and they used the locations um, that I mentioned in the book almost all the time. Where they haven't done that, they've sort of upgraded. My book kicks off in King's Cross. They use Stansted Airport, which is a much more, yeah. um, you know, a huge opening for a TV show. And, and they've done everything with, uh, with, with the utmost good intentions, all of which have worked out fine and I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled with it. Yeah. I was, uh, I'm actually staying in King's Cross right now and I was walking through the train station and I was doing the, uh, the thing that River winds up, it's, what is it, blue shirt, white jacket? Yeah. yeah. yeah I can never remember myself. Um, when you, I mean, did you get a chance to visit the set at all? Actually, oh, no, yeah, 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 a number of times. Uh, and in fact, if you watch um, episode one, Around about 33 minutes in, I think it is, you'll see me and my partner coming out of that Chinese takeaway just oh. before the contract <laughs> walks in. Um, a lot of the nuance of my performance was was lost in the editing of that. Well, I mean, they don't understand your work. But, you know, when you're looking at the odds on who's going to be the next James Bond, I feel like I've left my marker there. It's between you and Idris. Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> it's pretty close. And maybe Jack as well. Yeah. Was there a little bit of... Um... Did it almost feel like you were in a museum to your earlier... I mean, like, I guess I, I, it's sort of strange. It must be strange to be a novelist and be in a physical manifestation of your imagination and even if even get to be a part of it, in, in this case of the Chinese takeout. It, it, it is. And, you know, I, I kind of feel like I ought to really sit down and think about this harder than I have done so far because it's all, all been just sort of, you know, a day at a time. This is, this is what's going on. It is extraordinary. I think I'm going to look back on this and realize that it's a lot more extraordinary than it, than it feels like. Part of that is that, you know, I had my first meeting with Jamie Lawrenson from Seesaw, who's one of the exec producers, and they, they you know, Seesaw made this more than eight years ago now. I'd only published two of the novels. Um, so it's been a long process coming onto the screen, and it's always been a kind of background noise going on there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've known for some years. Uh, that Gary Oldman was going to be up there on the screen for a long time before it was announced. So it seems like everything that um, that becomes public, I've already got well used to by the time it's, we've reached that stage. And so it's just a kind of day-by-day, step-by-step 
process. And, you know, my life has been going on. I've been writing the books. I've been doing other things. So it's almost as if, you know, if I'd woken up one morning and, and just been presented, hey, we've made this, and I was shown you know, slow <laughs> yeah. I'd have been knocked out, you know, I'd been through a wall. Um, but because it's all been this kind of long, slow process, which has been very enjoyable yeah. um, for me, I mean, it's been very difficult for people making it because we had, you know, COVID apart from anything else. I've, I've just been expecting every everything to happen, if you like. Yeah. So it, it hasn't really hit me. I haven't really had that, that impact. There have been a couple of moments where I thought, oh, wow, this is happening. Finding out that Gary was going to play um, Jackson Lamb. Yeah. It's one moment, certainly. I think being on the set the first time and seeing Slough House, seeing the interior of Slough House was another because that really did feel like, you know, oh, they have taken something out of my head and they've built it. <laughs> um, it's, it's extraordinary how quickly you get used to this sort of thing, though. It's the astonishing thing. Um, we're all very adaptable when it comes to these kind of surprises, I think. Does it make you um, revisit those earlier novels? I mean, did you go back and, and reread them uh, to, before the the writing process of the show began to sort of kind of like refresh, not refresh your memory, you wrote them, but kind of interrogate them in a different way? Uh, refreshing my memory was very necessary yeah. um, because, you know, it is now so long ago. It's not so much the, the distance in time, it's what I've done in between, you know, having written several other books. I can't remember which is in which book sometimes. Certainly in terms of, you know, the, the character interplay. I'd like to pretend that I went back and sort of reread them with a with a more critical eye, but in fact I would I would sort of flick through the book on the train on the way to the meeting of the writers room. And I did find on many occasions that uh, the guys in the in the room knew they knew more than you did. The books <laughs> than I did yes. They were they, they were coming to fresh. I was um, trying to remember from a long distance. Uh, but essentially because I'm I'm looking at in a way I look at it as a kind of ongoing project you know the the series of books these are characters that um, that i will be continuing to work with for for a bit yet i hope uh it almost feels like the the divisions between the books sort of start to feel artificial to me you know this yeah is my 10 years with these characters my 12 years with these characters you know i was because i was going to ask we talk about crime fiction a lot on this podcast and often what will happen is you know especially in a series a writer will sort of write the first novel without necessarily knowing they're going to write a second novel and a third novel and a fifth novel in a series. And then, you know, you can sort of see them kind of decide in that second or third novel, this is what this kind of book is going to be. And this is like, I, I sort of now I have a feeling for the rhythm. Do you remember when you were writing Slow Horses, thinking of it as a standalone necessarily? Or do you do you remember like that sort of feeling as you were starting to write? Like, oh, I, I think that this I have something here. I think I want to keep writing about Jackson and River and 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 Catherine for a while to come. I absolutely did have that feeling. I mean, when I started writing it, it was simply, you know, the next book I was writing. It was a standalone. I'm not even sure I thought of it in those terms, but it was simply a book that wasn't in my series because I was writing about this private eye called Zoe. Most of the time I was writing it, I... I tend to have, uh, you know, one and a half ideas at any given time. The idea for the book I'm writing and half an idea for what I'll do next. And the half idea when I was writing Slow Horses was another Zoe book. Mm. But it was, and my idea for the ending of Slow Horses, it's the only time I've ever radically altered a book. I don't plan them in great precision, but I, I have an idea of where I'm going with it. And I had an idea for the end, which would have pretty much put paid to that being a sequel. <laughs> um and as I got near the end, I thought, do you know what? I, I like these characters. I'm going to change change that ending. Interesting. And keep them going. And I think subconsciously, perhaps I knew that because if you look at the first 
60, 70 pages. There's a lot of work went into each of the individual characters providing a kind of backstory, which would have been quite a waste, I think, if it was a single novel. Yeah. Um, so I think some part of me knew that this was going to continue, but I didn't consciously make that decision until, I don't know, about two thirds of the way in. I just thought, no, I'm, I'm sticking with these people. I, I want to write more about them. So you've got a new novel in the series coming out in May, I believe. And uh, you said you were writing this morning, so I assume that you're continuing to work on the, on on these on these characters in the oh, story. The, the book I'm book I'm writing at the moment is non-series. Oh, okay. But I was there's this sort of um, you know because I couldn't find it on the internet. Now I'm wondering if it's apocryphal, but there is this Lacare story about how once he saw Tinker Taylor that Alec Guinness was always in his head when he was writing Smiley after that, and that it sort of spooked him a little bit. And I was curious whether or not the same thing had happened with Oldman with you. Uh, not so far. I know, I know that story about Le Carre as well. I'd be hard-pressed to find um, a, a, a text for it, but it's, it seems to be generally accepted that yeah. that happened. Let's go with it. Yeah. You can see why. Let's go with it. Um, with Carrie, I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't uh, wouldn't hurt me. I don't think if it did. I have written an entire novel, Bad Actors, which is out next month, knowing that Gary Oldman was going to be playing. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly during the writing of that novel, I visited the set many times and saw him doing it and saw, you know, clips of him. It's very different from watching somebody do something on a set and then seeing the, the film of it afterwards. Yeah, because the, the, the takes and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'd seen all that sort of um, stuff and it didn't really seem to affect me. I write to the voices in my head mostly. I mean, I have the character voices. I've rarely had a strong visual image of what these characters look like. Oddly enough, the one character that I, well, one of the very few characters that I did have a strong visual image of, Jack Loudon fits that image to a T. Yes. <laughs> like he, he walked out of the page. Um, with Jackson, I mean, I, I've probably you know, expended time on physical descriptions of him it's more often saying what he's what he's up to than than what he looks like, uh, but still, it's it's just what he says. It's the, the voice that I that I go for, and Gary has that voice perfectly. Um, so you know, it wouldn't. I don't think it would affect me at all if I were to find that um, uh, the, the same thing that we know we've established as a fact that affected the character. If that that affected me too, I don't think I would worry about it. it it's just so fascinating. I, I remember as a reader. You know, I, I I always remember reading No Country for Old Men, the Cormac McCarthy novel, and I think I was three quarters of the way through it when the trailer for the Coen Brothers movie came out. Oh yeah, and immediately I was just I was like, well, those are those guys. The, the this is the most perfect like troika of of casting I've ever seen. Bardem is Chagru and and Tommy Lee Jones is the sheriff and Josh Brolin is the fugitive and and, it, and that was beat for beat to the book wasn't it? As well, I the, the book is Even basically a script, yeah. The book where yeah. where something happens off the page, uh, which you don't really expect so much from, uh, uh, in a novel, and that happens off screen as well. It just yeah, he just it has him arriving at the shootout after it's already happened. It's a brave moment, um, and to have them do that in the movie that's exactly one of the things you think. The producers would say, well, that worked in the book, obviously, but we're going to have to show it, you know, because yeah. this is a big dramatic moment. Uh, but they went with it. That was, that was quite laudable, I think. 
But it was interesting because when I, as soon as I saw that trailer, I, I couldn't get those guys' their, their faces were attached to those. And I wonder whether if, as I continue reading the series, if I'll start to see Gary, but there are worse people to see, I suppose, when you're, when you're visualizing something in your head. What's your experience been watching it? Have you been watching it week to week? Did you watch the series all in a bunch? I've been watching it week to week. Um, I went to a, an all-day screening. I saw all six episodes in a day. Uh, oh, wow. Break for lunch in the middle with, with the other writers, uh, with the writers, I should say, and some of the producers. And uh, and that was that was great. It was the first time any of us there, apart from the producers, had seen the whole thing. And that was that, they hadn't done the credit sequence yet, but we saw everything else. And we were with the director who talked us through a couple of interesting bits. And uh, no, it was a it was a great experience because it made it uh, a nice sort of communal experience for those of us who, who could work into it, you know, to to see it that way. That was um, that was great fun. Uh, I haven't been watching it week to week since. I I will watch it again at some point. At some all, point, all together. Yeah. Oh, and I was at the premiere where they showed the first two episodes. Uh, but actually, all I've seen of it so far has been on big screens. You know, I was at a cinema for the screening, and then. Yeah, it's a pretty unique experience. Most people are watching on their laptops or their televisions, yeah. Uh, but stuff like the opening sequence at the airport, you know, works really well on the big screen. It's like you're seeing a new Bond movie or something. Oh, it's, yeah. It's stuff. Yeah, it's uh, that I said when, when it first came out, I was like, this is one of the more thrilling like sort of first scenes of a series that you're going to see in, in a long time. Well, Mick, I won't, I won't take up any more of your time. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. I, I had such a, a great talk with you and uh, the show is amazing, but the novels are even better. So people should, should check them out and you've got a new one coming out next month. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been great. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you again. You too. Cheers. <laughs>